Chapters fifteen through eighteen of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter fifteen. The mark in the paper. Chaudiere was nearing the last of its nine days' wander. It had filed past the doorway of the tailor shop. It had loitered on the other side of the street. It had been measured for more clothes than in three months past that it might see Charlie at work in the shop, cross-legged on a bench, or wielding the goose, his eyeglass in his hand. Here was sensation indeed, for though old Ambro Signal the Seigneur had an eyeglass, it was held to his eye, a large bone-bound thing with a little golden handle. But no one in Chaudiere had ever worn a glass in his eye like that. Also no one in Chaudiere had ever looked quite like Monsieur for so it was that, after the first few days, a real tribute to his importance and sign of the interest he created, Charlie came to be called Monsieur, and the Millard was at last entirely dropped. Presently people came and stood at the tailor's door and talked, or listened to M. Trudel and Monsieur talking, and it came to be noised abroad that the stranger talked as well as the curé and better than the notary. By and by they associated his eyeglass with his talent, so that it seemed, as it were, to be the cause of it. Yet their talk was ever of simple subjects, of everyday life about them, now and then of politics, occasionally of the events of the world filtered to them through vast tracts of country. There was one subject which, however, was barred, perhaps because there was knowledge abroad that Monsieur was not a Catholic perhaps because Charlie himself adroitly changed the conversation when it veered that way. Though the parish had not quite made up its mind about him, there were a number of things in his favor. In the first place, the curé seemed satisfied. Secondly, he minded his own business. Also, he was working for Louis Trudel for nothing. These things Joe Portugais diligently impressed on the minds of all who would listen. From above the frosted part of the windows of the post-office, in the corner where she sorted letters, Rosalie could look over at the tailor's shop at an angle, could sometimes even see Monsieur standing at the long table with a piece of chalk, a pair of shears, or a measure. She watched the tailor's shop herself, but it annoyed her when she saw anyone else do so. She resented she was a woman and loved monopoly, all inquiry regarding Monsieur so frequently addressed to her. One afternoon as Charlie came out, on his way to the house on Vadrome Mountain, she happened to be outside. He saw her, paused, lifted his fur cap, and crossed the street to her. "'Have you perhaps paper, pens, and ink for sale, mademoiselle?' "'Yes, oh, yes. Come in, Monsieur Mollard.' "'Ah, uh, it is nice of you to remember me,' he answered. "'I see you every day, often,' she answered. "'Of course we are neighbors,' he responded the man the horse-trainer is quite well again he has gone home almost well she answered she placed pens paper and ink before him will these do perfectly he answered mechanically and laid a few pens and a bottle of ink beside the paper you were very brave that day he said they had not talked together since though seeing each other so often oh no i knew he would make friends with me the hound of course he rejoined we should show animals that we trust them, she said in some confusion, for being near him made her heart throb painfully. He did not answer. Presently his eye glanced at the paper again, and was arrested. He ran his fingers over it, 
and a curious look flashed across his face. He held the paper up to the light quickly and looked through it. It was thin, half-foreign paper, without lines, and there was a watermark in it, large, shadowy, filmy, Kathleen. It was paper made in the mills which had belonged to Kathleen's uncle. This watermark was made to celebrate their marriage day. Only for one year had this paper been made, and then the trade in it was stopped. It had gone its ways down the channels of commerce, and here it was in his hand a reminder not only of the old life, but, as it were, the parchment for the new. There it was, a piece of plain good paper, ready for pen and ink, and his letter to the curé's brother in Paris, the only letter he would ever write, ever again until he died, so he told himself but hold it up to the light, and there was the name over which his letter must be written, Kathleen, invisible but permanent, obscured but brought to life by the raising of a hand. The girl caught the flash of feeling in his face, saw him holding the paper up to the light, and then with an abstracted air, calmly laying it down. "'That will do, thank you,' he said. "'Give me the whole packet.' She wrapped it up for him without a word, and he laid down a two-dollar note, the last he had in the world. "'How much of this paper have you?' he asked. The girl looked under the counter. Six packets,' she said. Six and a few sheets over.' "'I will take it all. But keep it for me, for a week, or perhaps a fortnight, will you?' He did not need all this paper to write letters upon, yet he meant to buy all the paper of this sort that the shop contained. But he must get money from Louis Trudel. He would speak about it to-morrow.' Monsieur does not want me to sell even the loose sheets? No, I like the paper, and I will take it all. Very good, monsieur. Her heart was beating hard. All this man did had particular significance to her. His look seemed to say, Do not fear, I will tell you things. She gave him the parcel and the change, and he turned to go. Do you read much? he asked, almost casually, yet deeply interested in the charm and intelligence of her face. "'Why, yes, monsieur,' she answered quickly. "'I am always reading.' He did not speak at once. He was wondering whether in this primitive place such a mind and nature would be the wiser for reading, whether it were not better to be without a mental aspiration which might set up false standards. "'What are you reading now?' he asked with his hand on the door. "'Anthony and Cleopatra, also Enoch Arden,' she answered in good English and without accent. His head turned quickly towards her, but he did not speak. "'Enoch Arden is terrible,' she added eagerly. "'Don't you think so, monsieur?' "'It is very painful,' he answered. "'Good night.' He opened the door and went out. She ran to the door and watched him go down the street. For a little she stood thinking, then turning to the counter, and snatching up a sheet of the paper he had bought, held it up to the light. She gave a cry of amazement. "'Kathleen!' she exclaimed. She thought of the start he gave when he looked at the watermark. She thought of the look on his face when he said he would buy all this paper she had. "'Who was Kathleen?' she whispered, as though she was afraid someone would hear. "'Who was Kathleen?' she said again, resentfully. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 Madame Dauphin Has a Mission one day Charlie began to know the gossip of the village about him from a source less friendly than Joe Portugais. The notary's wife, bringing her boy to be measured for a suit of broadcloth, asked Charlie if the things Joe had told about him were true, 
and if it was also true that he was a Protestant and perhaps an Englishman. As yet Charlie had been asked no direct questions, for the people of Chaudiere had the consideration of their temperament, but the notary's wife was half English, and being a figure in the place she took to herself more privileges than did old Madame Dugal, the curé's sister. To her ill-disguised impertinence in English, as bad as her French and as fluent, Charlie listened with quiet interest. When she had finished her voluble statement, she said, with a simpler and a sneer for, after all, a notary's wife must keep her position, "'And now, what is the truth about it? And are you a Protestant?' There was a sinister look in old Trudel's eyes as, cross-legged on his table, he listened to Madame Dauphin. He remembered the time twenty-five years ago when he had proposed to this babbling woman and had been rejected with scorn, to his subsequent satisfaction for there was no visible reason why any one should envy the notary in his house or out of it. Already Trudel had a respect for the tongue of Monsieur. He had not talked much the few days he had been in the shop, but, as the old man had said to Philian Lacasse the saddler, his brain was like a pair of shears. It went clip, clip, clip right through everything. He had hoped that his new apprentice, with the hand of a master workman, would go clip, clip, through madame's inquisitiveness. He was not disappointed, for he heard Charlie say, "'One person in the witness-box at a time, madame. Till Joe Portugais is cross-examined and steps down, I don't see what I can do.' "'But you are a Protestant,' said the woman snappishly. This man was only a tailor dressed in full cloth, and no doubt his past life would not bear inspection, and she was the notary's wife and had said to people in the village that she would find out the man's history from himself. "'That is one good reason why I should not go to confession,' he replied casually, and turned to a table where he had been cutting a waistcoat for the first time in his life. "'Do you think I'm going to stand your impertinence? Do you know who I am?' Charlie calmly put up his monocle. He looked at the foolish little woman with so cruel a flash of the eye that she shrank back. "'I should know you anywhere,' he said. "'Come, Stephen,' she said nervously to her boy, and pulled him towards the door. On the instant Charlie's feeling changed. Was he then going to carry the old light into the new, and rebuke a silly, garish woman whose faults were generic more than personal? He hurried forward to the door, and courteously opened it for her. "'Permit me, madame,' he said. She saw that there was nothing ironical in his politeness. She had a sudden apprehension of an unusual quality called the genteel, for no storekeeper in Chaudiere ever opened or shut a shop-door for anybody. She smiled a vaucous smile. She played the lady terribly, as, with a curious conception of dignity, she held her body stiff as a ramrod, and with a prim merci sailed into the street. This gorgeous exit changed her opinion of the man she had been unable to catechize undoubtedly he had snubbed her that was the word she used in her mind but his last act had enabled her in the sight of several habitants and even of madame de gaulle to put on airs as the charming madame de gaulle said afterwards thinking it better to give the impression that she had had a successful interview she shook her head mysteriously when asked about monsieur and murmured he is quite the gentleman which she thought a socially distinguished remark when she had gone Charlie turned to old Lewis. "'I don't want to turn your customers away,' he said quietly. "'But there it is. 
I don't need to answer questions as a part of business, do I? There was a sour grin on the face of old Trudel. He grunted some inaudible answer, then after a pause added, I'd have been hung for murder if she'd answered the question I'd asked her once as I wanted her to. He opened and shut his shears with a sardonic gesture. Charlie smiled and went to the window. For a minute he stood watching Madame Dauphin and Rosalie at the post-office door. The memory of his talk with Rosalie was vivid to him at the moment. He was thinking also that he had not a penny in the world to pay for the rest of the paper he had bought. He turned round and put on his coat slowly. "'What are you doing that for?' asked the old man with a kind of snarl, yet with trepidation. "'I don't think I'll work any more today.' "'Not work? Smoke of the devil! Isn't Sunday enough to play in? You're not put out by that fool wife of Dolphin's?' "'Oh, no, not that. I want an understanding about wages.' To Lewis the dread crisis had come. He turned a little green, for he was very miserly, for the love of God. He had scarcely realized what was happening when Charlie first sat down on the bench beside him. He had been taken by surprise. Apart from the excitement of the new experience, he had profited by the curiosity of the public, for he had orders enough to keep him busy until summer, and he had had to give out work to two extra women in the parish though he had never before had more than one working for him. But his ruling passion was strong in him. He always remembered with satisfaction that once when the curé was absent and he was supposed to be dying, a priest from another parish came, and the ministrations over he had made an offering of a gold piece. When the young priest hesitated his fingers had crept back to the gold piece, closed on it, and drawn it back beneath the coverlet again. He had then peacefully fallen asleep. It was a gracious memory. "'I don't need much. I don't want a great deal,' continued Charlie when the tailor did not answer. "'But I have to pay for my bed and board, and I can't do it on nothing.' "'How have you done it so far?' peevishly replied the tailor. "'By working after hours at carpentering up there,' he made a gesture towards Vadrome Mountain. "'But I can't go on doing that all the time, or I'll be like you too soon.' "'Be like me?' The voice of the tailor rose shrilly. "'Be like me. What's the matter with me?' "'Only that you're in a bad way before your time, and that you mayn't get out of this hole without stepping into another. You work too hard, Monsieur Trudel.' "'What do you want, wages?' Charlie inclined his head. "'If you think I'm worth them.' The tailor viciously sniffed the piece of cloth. "'How can I pay you wages if you stand there doing nothing?' "'This was my day for doing nothing,' Charlie answered pleasantly for the tailor-man amused him, and the whimsical mental attitude of his past life was being brought to the surface by this odd figure, with big spectacles pushed up on a yellow forehead and shrunken hands viciously clutching the shears. "'You don't mean to say you're not going to work today, and this suit of clothes promised for tomorrow night, for the manor-house, too?' With a piece of chalk Charlie idly made heads on brown paper. After all, why should clothes be the first thing in one's mind when they are someone else's? It's a beautiful day outside. I've never felt the sun so warm and the air so crisp and sweet, never in all my life. Then where have you lived? snapped out the tailor with a sneer. You must be a Yankee. They have only what we leave over down there. He jerked his head southward. We don't stop to look at weather here. I suppose you did where you come from. Charlie smiled in a distant sort of way. Where I came from, when we weren't paid for our work, 
we always stop to consider our health and the weather. I don't want a great deal. I put it to you honestly. Do you want me? If you do, will you give me enough to live on? Enough to buy a suit of clothes a year to pay for food and a room. If I work for you for nothing, I have to live on others for nothing, or kill myself as you're doing. There was no answer at once, and Charlie went on. I came to you because I saw you wanted help badly. I saw that you were hard-pushed and sick. I wasn't sick, interrupted the tailor with a snarl. Well, overworked, which is the same thing in the end. I did the best I could. I gave you my hands. Awkward enough they were at first, I know, but— It's a lie. They weren't awkward, churlishly cut in the tailor. Well, perhaps they weren't so awkward, but they didn't quite know what to do. You knew as well as if you'd been taught came back in a growl. Well, then, I wasn't awkward, and I had a knack for the work. What was more, I wanted work. I wanted to work at the first thing that appealed to me. I had no particular fancy for tailoring. You get bow-legged in time. The old spirit was fighting with the new. But here you were at work, and there I was idle, and I had been ill, and someone who wasn't responsible for me, a stranger, worked for me and cared for me. Wasn't it natural, when you were playing the devil with yourself, that I should step in and give you a hand? You've been better since, isn't that so? The tailor did not answer. But I can't go on as we are, though I want only enough to keep me going, Charlie continued. And if I don't give you what you want, you'll leave? No, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to stay here, for you'll never get another man so cheap. And it suits me to stay. You need someone to look after you. A curious look suddenly flashed into the tailor's eyes. "'Will you take on this business after I'm gone?' he asked at last. "'It's a long time to look ahead, I know,' he added, quickly, for not in words would he acknowledge the possibility of the end. "'I should think so,' Charlie answered, his eyes on the bright sun and the soft snow in the trees beyond the window. The tailor snatched up a pattern and figured on it for a moment. Then he handed it to Charlie. "'Will that do?' he asked with anxious, acquisitive look, his yellow eyes blinking hard. Charlie looked at it musingly, then said, "'Yes, if you give me a room here.' "'I meant board and lodging, too,' said Louis Trudell, with an outburst of eager generosity, for, as it was, he had offered about one-half of what Charlie was worth to him. Charlie nodded. "'Very well, that will do,' he said, and took off his coat and went to work. For a long time they worked silently. The tailor was in great good humor, for the terrible trial was over, and now he had an assistant who would be a better tailor than himself. There would be more profit, more silver nails for the church door, and more masses for his soul. "'The curé says you are all right. When will you come here?' he said at last. "'Tomorrow night I shall sleep here,' answered Charlie. So it was arranged that Charlie should come to live in the tailor's house to sleep in the room which the tailor had provided for a wife twenty-five years before, even for her that was now known as Madame Dauphin. All morning the tailor chuckled to himself. When they sat down at noon to a piece of venison which Charlie had prepared himself, taking the frying-pan out of the hands of Margot Patry, the old servant, and cooking it to a turn, Louis Trudel saw his ears lengthen to an indefinite period. He even allowed himself to nervously stand up, bow, shake Charlie's hand jerkingly, and say, "'Monsieur, I care not what you are or where you come from, and even if you're a Protestant, perhaps an Englishman. You're a gentleman and a tailor, 
and old Louis Trudel will not forget you. It shall be said as you said this morning, it is no day for work. We will play, and the clothes for the manor can go to the devil. Smoke of hell fire, I will go and have a pipe with that poor wretch the notary. So a wonderful thing happened. Louis Trudel, on a weekday and a market day, went to smoke a pipe with Narcisse Dauphin and to tell him that M. Mallard was going to stay with him forever at fine wages. He also announced that he had paid this whole week's wages in advance, but he did not tell what he did not know, that half the money had already been given to old Margot, whose son lay ill at home with a broken leg and whose children were living on bread and water. Charlie had slowly drawn from the woman the story of her life as he sat by the kitchen fire and talked to her, while her master was talking to the notary. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 The Tailor Makes a Midnight Foray Since the day Charlie had brought home the paper bought at the post office and watermarked Kathleen, he had at odd times written down his thoughts and promptly torn the paper up again or put it in the fire. In the repression of his new life, in which he must live wholly alone, so far as all past habits of mind were concerned, it was a relief to record his passing reflections, as he had been wont to do when the necessity for it was less. Writing them here was like the bursting of an imprisoned stream. It was relaxing the ceaseless eye of vigilance, freeing an imprisoned personality. This personality was not yet merged into that which must take its place, must express itself in the involuntary acts which tell of a habit of mind and body, no longer the imitative and the histrionic, but the inherent and the real. On the afternoon of the day that old Lewis agreed to give him wages and went to smoke a pipe with the notary, Charlie scribbled down his thoughts on this matter of personality and habit. Who knows, he wrote, which is the real self? A child comes into the world gin-begotten, with the instinct for liquor in his brain like the scent of the fox in the nostrils of the hound. And that seems the real. But the same child, caught up on the hands of chance, is carried into another atmosphere, is cared for by gin-hating minds and hearts. Habit fastens on him, fair, decent, and temperate habit, and he grows up like the cure yonder, a brother of Aaron. Which is the real? Is the instinct for gin killed or covered? Is the habit of good living mere habit and mere acting, in which the real man never lives his real life? Or is it the real life? Who knows? Here am I, born with a question in my mouth, with the ever-present non-possumus in me. Here am I, to whom life was one poor futility, to whom brain was but animal intelligence abnormally developed to whom speechless sensibility and intelligence was the only reality, to whom nothing from beyond ever sent a flash of conviction and intimation into my soul, not one. To me God always seemed a being of dreams, the creation of a personal need and helplessness, the despairing cry of the victims of futility. And here am I, flung like a stone from a sling, into this field where men believe in God as a present and tangible being who reply to all life's agonies and joys and exultations with the words c'est le bon dieu and what shall i become will habit do its work and shall i cease to be me shall i in the permanency of habit become like unto this tailor here whose life narrows into one sole cause whose only wish is to have the church draw the coverlet of forgiveness and safety over him 
who has solved all questions in a blind belief or an inherited predisposition which this stinging hard unhappy man how should he know what i am denied or does he know is it all illusion if there is a god who receives such devotion to the exclusion of natural demand and spiritual anxieties why does not this tailor let his light shine before men that they may see his good works and glorify his father which is in heaven that is it therefore wherefore tailor man therefore wherefore god show me a sign from heaven tailor man seated on his bench in the shop with his eyes ever and anon raised towards the little post-office opposite he wrote these words afterwards he sat and thought till the shadows deepened and the tailor came in to supper then he took up the pieces of paper and going to the fire which was still lighted of an evening thrust them inside louis trudel saw the paper burning and glancing down he noticed that one piece the last had slipped to the floor and was lying under the table he saw the pencil still in charlie's hand forthwith his natural suspicion leaped up and the cunning of the monomaniac was upon him with all his belief in le bon dieu and the church louis trudel trusted no one one eye was ever open to distrust man while the other was ever closed with blind belief in heaven as charlie stooped to put wood in the fire the tailor thrust a foot forward and pushed the piece of paper further under the table that night the tailor crept down into the shop felt for the paper in the dark found it and carried it away to his room all kinds of thoughts had raged through his diseased mind it was a letter perhaps and if a letter then he would gain some facts about the man's life but if it was a letter why did he burn it it was said that he never received a letter and never sent one therefore it was little likely to be a letter if not a letter then what could it be perhaps the man was english and a spy of the english government for was there not disaffection in some of the parishes perhaps it was a plan of robbery to such a state of hallucination did his weakened mind come that he forgot the kindly feeling he had had for this stranger who had worked for him without pay suspicion the bane of sick old age was hot on him he remembered that monsieur had put an arm through his when they went upstairs and that now increased suspicion why should the man have been so friendly to lull him into confidence perhaps and then to rob and murder him in his sleep thank god his ready money was well hid and the rest was safe in the bank far away he crept back to his room with a paper in his hand it was the last sheet of what charlie had written and had been accidentally brushed off on the floor it was in french and holding the candle close he slowly deciphered the crabbed characteristic handwriting his eyes dilated his yellow cheeks took on spots of unhealthy red his hand trembled anger seized him and he mumbled the words over and over again to himself twice or thrice as the paper lay in one hand he struck it with the clenched fist of the other muttering and distraught this tailor here this stingy hard unhappy man if there is a god therefore wherefore tailor man therefore wherefore god show me a sign from heaven tailor man hatred of himself blasphemy the profane and hellish humour of of the infidel a protestant heretic he was already damned a robber you could put him in jail a spy you could shoot him or tar and feather him a murderer you could hang him but an infidel this was a deadly poison a black danger 
a being capable of all crimes. An infidel. Therefore, wherefore, tailor-man? Therefore, wherefore, God? Show me a sign from heaven, tailor-man. The devil laughing, the devil incarnate come to mock a poor tailor, to sow plague through a parish where all were at peace in the bosom of the church. The tailor had three ruling passions. Cupidity, vanity, and religion. Charlie had now touched the three, and the whole man was alive. His cupidity had been flattered by the unpaid service of a capable assistant, but now he saw that he was paying the devil a wage. His vanity was overwhelmed by a satanic ridicule. His religion and his God had been assaulted in so shameful a way that no punishment could be great enough for the man of hell. In religion he was a fanatic. He was a demented fanatic now. He thrust the paper into his pocket, then crept out into the hall and to the door of Charlie's bedroom. He put his ear to the door. After a moment he slowly raised the latch and opened the door and listened again. Monsieur was in a deep sleep. Louis Trudel scarcely knew why he had listened, why he had opened the door and stood looking at the figure in the bed, barely definable in the semi-darkness of the room. If he had meant harm to the helpless man, he had brought no weapon. If he had been curious, there the man was peacefully sleeping. His sick, morbid imagination was so alive that he scarcely knew what he did. As he stood there listening, hatred and horror in his heart, a voice said to him, thou shalt do no murder. The words kept ringing in his ears. Yet he had not thought of murder. The fancied command itself was his first temptation toward such a deed. He had thought of raising the parish, of condign punishment of many sorts, but not this. As he closed the door softly, killing entered his mind and stayed there. Thou shalt not had been the first instigation to thou shalt. It haunted him as he returned to his room, undressed himself, and went to bed. He could not sleep. Show me a sign from heaven, tailor man. The challenge had been to himself. He must respond to it. The duty lay with him. He must answer this black infidel for the church, for faith, for God. The more he thought of it, the more Charlie's face came before him with the monocle shining and hard in the eye. The monocle haunted him. That was the infidel sign. Show me a sign from heaven, tailor man. What sign should he show? Presently he sat up straight in bed. In a minute he was out and dressing. Five minutes later he was on his way to the parish church. When he reached it he took a tool from his pocket and unscrewed a small iron cross from the front door. It was a cross which had been blessed by the Pope and had been brought to Chaudiere by the beloved mother of the curé, now dead. When I have done with it I will put it back, he said, as he thrust it inside his shirt and hurried stealthily back to his house. As he got into bed he gave a noiseless, mirthless laugh. All night he lay with his yellow eyes wide open, gazing at the ceiling. He was up at dawn, hovering about the fire in the shop. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 The Stealing of the Cross if Charlie had been less engaged with his own thoughts, he would have noticed the curious baleful look in the eyes of the tailor, but he was deeply absorbed in a struggle that had nothing to do with Louis Trudel. The old fever of thirst and desire was upon him. All morning the door of Jacqueline's saloon was opening and shutting before his mind's eye, and there was a smell of liquor everywhere. 
it was in his nostrils when the hot steam rose from the clothes he was pressing, in the thick odor of the full cloth, in the melting snow outside the door. Time and again he felt that he must run out of the shop and away to the little tavern where white whiskey was sold to unwise habitants. But he fought on. Here was the heritage of his past, the lengthening chain of slavery to his old self. Was it his real self? Here was what would prevent him from forgetting all that he had been and not been, all the happiness he might have had, all that he had lost, the ceaseless reminder. He was still the victim to a poison which gave not only a struggle of body, but a struggle of soul, if he had a soul. The phrase kept repeating itself to him, even as he fought the fever in his throat, resisting the temptation to take that medicine which the curé's brother had sent him. If he had a soul, the thinking served as an antidote, for by the ceaseless iteration his mind was lulled into a kind of drowse. Again and again he went to the pail of water that stood on the window-sill, and lifting it to his lips drank deep and full to quench the wearing thirst. If he had a soul, he looked at Louis Trudel, silent and morose, the clammy yellow of a great sickness in his face and hands, but his mind only intent on making a waistcoat, and the end of all things very near. The words he had written the night before came to him. Therefore, wherefore, tailor man? Therefore, wherefore, God? Show me a sign from heaven, tailor man. As if in reply to his thoughts, there came the sound of singing and of bells ringing in the parish church. A procession with banners was coming near. It was a holy day, and Chaudier was mindful of its duties. The wanderers of the parish had come home for Easter. All who belonged to Chaudier and worked in the woods or shanties or lived in big cities far away were returned, those who could return, to take the Holy Communion in the parish church. Yesterday the parish had been alive with a pious hilarity. The great church had been crowded beyond the doors, the streets had been full of cheerily dressed habitants. There had, however, come a sudden chill to the seemly rejoicings. The little iron cross blessed by the Pope had been stolen from the door of the church. The fact had been told to the curé as he said the mass, and from the altar steps before going to the pulpit, he referred to the robbery with poignant feeling, for the relic had belonged to a martyr of the church who, two centuries before, had laid down his life for the master on the coast of Africa. Louis Trudel had heard the curé's words, and in his place at the rear of the church he smiled sorely to himself. In due time, the little cross should be returned, but it had work to do first. He did not take the Holy Communion this Easter day or go to confession as was his wont. Not, however, until a certain day later did the curé realize this, though for thirty years the tailor had never omitted his Easter-time duties. The people guessed and guessed, but they knew not on whom to cast suspicion at first. No sane Catholic of Chaudier could possibly have taken the holy thing. Presently a murmur crept about that Monsieur might have been the thief. He was not a Catholic, and who could tell? Who knew where he came from? Who knew what he had been? Perhaps a jailbird, robber, murderer? Charlie, however, stitched on, intent upon his own struggle. The procession passed the doorway, men bearing banners with sacred texts, acolytes swinging censers, a figure of the Savior carved in wood borne aloft, the curé under a silk canopy, and a long line of habitants following with sacred song. 
People fell upon their knees in the street as the procession passed, and the curé's face was bent here and there, his hand raised in blessing. Old Lewis got up from his bench, and putting on a coat over his wool jacket, hastened to the doorway, knelt down, made the sign of the cross, and said a prayer. Then he turned quickly towards Charlie, who, looking at the procession, then at the tailor, then back again at the procession, smiled. Charlie was hardly conscious of what he did. His mind had ranged far beyond this scene to the large issues which these symbols represented. Was it one universal self-deception? Was this religion the pathetic, the soul-breaking, make-believe of morality? So he smiled at himself, at his own soul, which seemed alone in this play, the skeleton in armor, the thing that did not belong. His own words written that fateful day before he died at the Cote d'Orion came to him. Sacristan, acolyte, player or preacher, each to his own office, but who holds the key? Death, only death thou, the ultimate teacher, wilt show it to me. He was suddenly startled from his reverie, through which the procession was moving, a cloud of witnesses. It was the voice of Louis Trudel, sharp and piercing. Don't you believe in God and the Son of God? God knows, answered Charlie slowly in reply an involuntary exclamation of helplessness, an automatic phrase deflected from its first significance to meet a casual need of the mind. Yet it seemed like satire, like a sardonic, even vulgar humor. So it struck Louis Trudel, who snatched up a hot iron from the fire and rushed forward with a snarl. So astounded was Charlie that he did not stir. He was not prepared for the sudden onslaught. He did not put up his hand even, but stared at the tailor who, within a foot of him, stopped short with the iron poised. Louis Trudel repented in time. With the cunning of the monomaniac he realized that an attack now might frustrate his great stroke. It would bring the village to his shop door, precipitate the crisis upon the wrong incident. As it chanced, only one person in Chaudier saw the act. That was Rosalie Evanturel across the way. She saw the iron raised and looked for Monsieur to knock the tailor down, but instead she beheld the tailor go back and put the iron on the fire again. She saw also that Monsieur was speaking, though she could hear no words. Charlie's words were simple enough. "'I beg your pardon, Monsieur,' he said across the room to old Louis. "'I meant no offence at all. I was trying to think it out in a human sort of way. I suppose I wanted a sign from heaven.' want it too much, no doubt. The tailor's lips twitched, and his hand convulsively clutched the shears at his side. It is no matter now, he answered shortly. I have had signs from heaven. Perhaps you will have one, too. It would be worth while, rejoined Charlie musingly. Charlie wondered bitterly if he had made an irreparable error in saying those ill-chosen words. This might mean a breach between them, and so make his position in the parish untenable. He had no wish to go elsewhere. Where could he go? It mattered little what he was, tinker or tailor. He had now only to work his way back to the mind of the peasant, to be an animal with intelligence, to get close to Mother Earth, and move down the declivity of life with what natural wisdom were possible. It was his duty to adapt himself to the mind of such as this tailor, to acquire what the tailor and his like had found, an intolerant belief and an inexpensive security, to be got through yielding his nature to the great religious dream. And what perfect tranquillity, 
what smooth travelling found therein gazing across the street towards the little post-office he saw rosalie evanturel at the window he fell to thinking about her rosalie on her part kept wondering what old louis violence meant presently she saw a half-dozen men come quickly down the street and before they reached the tailor's shop stand in a group talking excitedly afterwards one came forward from the others quickly Philian lacasse the saddler he stopped short at the tailor's door looking at charlie he exclaimed roughly if you don't hand out the cross you stole from the church door we'll tar and feather you monsieur charlie looked up surprised it had never occurred to him that they could associate him with the theft i know nothing of the cross he said quietly you're the only heretic in the place you've done it who are you what are you doing here in chaudiere working at my trade was charlie's quiet answer he looked towards louis trudel as though to see how he took this ugly charge old louis responded at once get away with you filian lacasse he croaked don't come here with your twaddle monsieur hasn't stole the cross what does he want with a cross he's not a catholic if he didn't steal the cross why he didn't answered the saddler but if he did what you'll say for yourself louis you call yourself a good catholic bah when you've got a heretic living with you what's that to you growled the tailor and reached out a nervous hand towards the iron i served at the altar before you were born sacre i'll make your grave clothes yet and be a good catholic when you're in the churchyard be off with you ah he sharply added when filion did not move i'll cut your hair for you he scrambled off the bench with his shears Philian Lacasse disappeared with his friends, and the old man settled back on his bench. Charlie, looking up quietly from his work, said, "'Thank you, monsieur.' He did not notice what an evil look was in Louis Trudel's face as it turned towards him, but Rosalie Evanturel, standing outside, saw it, and she stole back to the post-office ill at ease and wondering. All that day she watched the tailor's shop, and even when the door was shut in the evening her eyes were fastened on the window. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.